and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Joshua Byun, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Boston College. Josh, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about a recent article you published with some co-authors in the Journal of Contemporary Security Policy that examines the validity of the claims around the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan a couple of years ago, which were ubiquitous at the time that the withdrawal would undermine the credibility of other U.S. security commitments around the world. A lot of establishment foreign policy voices warned that withdrawing from this costly war that we had lost, you know, like dozens of years prior, um, would signal to Russia that we wouldn't stand up to them in Europe or to China that we won't confront them in East Asia or to allies everywhere that we won't defend them. Um, what you found in your paper I think adds to a large literature that um, sort of undermines this and questions the, this kind of thinking. But um, before we get into the actual content of the paper, I wonder if you can kind of set the table for us with um, explaining what credibility and reputation are in international politics. How do, how do political scientists and international relations scholars understand these terms? Uh, yeah, thank you, John. Uh, this is an excellent uh, question. Um, the, this is an area where there is tends to be some confusion, conflation among key terms and concepts. So it is important to get some of these uh, concepts ironed out before we go into the discussion. So uh, credibility um, in uh, international politics is generally defined as the perceived likelihood that an actor will follow through on its threats. Okay? This is in the context that we're discussing. It's, it's about uh, the kinds of threats that you're making to, for example, intervene on behalf of an ally when if an adversary should ever uh, conduct an attack against your ally or partner, and you're making a threat that if you make a move against this ally or this territory, we will forcefully intervene. And um, credibility is simply the perceived likelihood in the eyes of others that you will follow through on this threat. Right? Um, resolve is generally considered as one of the key kind of factors that influence your credibility in international politics. Uh, the other is capabilities. Uh, and resolve is typically, uh, just simply put, an actor's determination, or the firmness, uh, how steadfast you are in the face of adversity. That's uh, basically your Oxford English Dictionary definition right there. Uh, a reputation for resolve is the belief that others hold about your resolve based on your past behavior. So there is widespread agreement that credibility is an asset to be prized in national politics. No one would dispute that you want your threats to be believed when you make them. Uh, also, there's little disagreement that um, the amount of resolve or the amount of resolve that others think you have in a particular dispute matters greatly for how credible your threats are perceived in national politics. The question is whether your reputation for resolve uh, the belief that others formulate about your resolve based on your past behavior, if this is a critical determinant that uh, kind of explains variation in your credibility. So um, the, these are related but distinct concepts. And credibility is the ultimate, um, how should we say, the dependent variable we're interested in. Um, and the key question on the table, of course, is whether a reputation for resolve is a key or primary determinant of your credibility. Excellent. What does the scholarly literature on credibility and reputation say? I probably haven't read all of it, but I've dug into this issue deeply in my own past research, and 
my understanding is that a lot of uh especially early and even kind of canonical literature emphasizes the importance of these factors in thinking about extended deterrence and so on. Most of the rigorous treatments though actually uh, suggest credibility does not work in this falling chain of dominoes kind of way where where a change in policy towards one ally or conflict area automatically triggers concerns about American fecklessness with other allies or regions. Daryl Press, of course, wrote a, a well-known book uh, called Calculating Credibility. John Mercer has done good work on reputation. Take us through a bit of a, a lit review on this. This is an extensive literature, and if you could just bear with me for a second, uh, if I could give you a kind of a lengthy-ish mini-anthology of, of this literature. So in the United States, conventional wisdom among and of ordinary people, as well as a lot of policymakers and pundits, seems to be that a country's, uh, a country's uh, reputation for resolve, perceived resolve in the dispute, is uh, determined first and foremost by what it did in the past, its reputation for resolve. If you stood up for your allies in the past, or if you stood up in your disputes in the past, others will believe that you will stand up for an ally in the current dispute. Uh, if you abandon your allies or partners in the past, others will not believe that you will follow through on your promise to intervene on behalf of another M or your current M in the current dispute. Now, during the Cold War, this was the conventional wisdom among a lot of security scholars as well. Um, Thomas Schelling, um, who is, of course, a uh, pre preeminent figure in our discipline, um, he wrote a lot of good works, um, a lot of different ideas, but he subscribed to this basic line of thinking in his famous book, Arms and Influence. Um, he talked about how there's a kind of face that you had to save or preserve in international politics. It's your reputation for action. Uh, he even called it one of the few things worth fighting over in international politics, right? Um, very few pieces of territory or very few allies are intrinsically valuable, worth uh, committing American lives to uh, fight for, to stand up for. Um, but by standing up for even peripheral commitments, the idea was that um, this will shore up your reputation for resolve uh, and uh, bolster your credibility uh, if a dispute should, should arise in a more important strategic location later on. Um, and he was very explicit about this. This means that threats, the kinds of threats and commitments you make in international politics are fundamentally interdependent. But he's kind of hinting at a domino theory 101 kind of thinking, right? Your threats, commitments are inter interdependent so that the behavior you, you display in a one specific location can reverberate in how others assess your credibility in other locations. Uh, note how serious the implications of this kind of reasoning uh, are for the American foreign policy or grand strategy debate. Um, if it turns out that an awareness of your failure to stand up for, say, uh, Afghanistan or Vietnam, uh, South Vietnam, of course. Uh, if if this invariably undermines your credibility um, among observers in other more important regions, Northeast Asia, for example, uh, the range of global military commitments the United States must embrace in the 21st century is just truly vast. A strong case can be made that the United States can rarely afford to shed any of these burdens. Even if you have mountains of analysis showing that a particular country or particular territory just doesn't mean very much in terms of the overall balance of power, 
uh, because again, as Shanling said, a reputation for resolute action is one of the few things worth fighting. Uh, global commitments and threats would be then fundamentally interdependent. So this kind of idea was taken for granted even in academia, I would say until around, say, the mid-1990s, when John Mercer, who was then at George Washington, and now I believe he's uh, at the University of Washington in Seattle, um, he produced the first major dedicated study of the relationship between past actions and deterrent credibility in international politics. Um, and this book really kind of upended, as you said, the conventional wisdom on reputation set the tone for how IR scholars think about this issue for years and years. His starting observation was that reputation is at its core a judgment about by others about your character, the type of person you are. In psychology, a fancy term for this would be a disposition, an individual's kind of inherent quality of mind. And Mercer pointed out that a reputation for resolve or lack of resolve can logically only form if observers explain your behavior in past disputes in terms of your disposition, in terms of the inherent type of person you are. Okay? Uh, the reputation hypothesis, in other words, is only tenable if actors make dispositional attributions in world politics, right? if they attribute your behavior to the kind of person you inherently are. By contrast, uh, if actors are prone to making what's called situational attributions, they tend to explain your behavior by pointing to the particularities, the idiosyncrasies of the situation. And reputations can't really be a thing. Um, an illustration I often like to use with my students is that of a schoolyard bully. Right? How to explain this a small kid fighting back against a stronger bully when he tried to take his lunch money? Right? If the bully makes a dispositional attribution, then the small kid now has a reputation for resolve or fighting back that might protect him from getting bullied later on. But if the bully makes a situational attribution, for example, um, you know, the kid only fought back probably because his powerful older sister was in town from college. And the fact that this kid fought back in the past might not reliably protect him later on. Because the situation might have changed. And the Mercer, what he did was to draw on a core finding in social psychology that had been confirmed and replicated over and over again in the course of many decades. And this core finding basically states that when individuals are interpreting behavior by an external actor, they tend to make dispositional attributions when they see behavior that is undesirable, behavior that they don't like. Situational attributions they make when they see behavior that is desirable. So put differently, when we see another person or country acting in a way you don't like, we tend to exaggerate the role of their character or disposition and downplay the role of situation. By contrast, when we see another person doing what we want, um, we tend to attribute it to situation rather than their inherent good qualities. Yeah. Um, this pattern was confirmed so many times in experimental psychology that it had been dubbed the fundamental attribution error. And Mercer basically fleshed out the implications of this kind of finding for international politics, the implication being that standing firm in a dispute, just because you think it will increase your credibility, say, among allies later on, is stupid. In, in a word, stupid, because they won't explain it in terms of your disposition. A reputation for resolve cannot form. By the same token, not backing down in this dispute, just because you think backing down will then create a reputation for lack of resolve among your adversaries, 
is not worth it, right? So fighting or not fighting because of reputational concerns is uh, generally an ambiguous proposition at best. And that was the finding. Um, then this study really shook up the retrenched view among IR scholars about the relationship between past actions and deterrence credibility. And the next big punch, of course, came in 2005 with Daryl Press's book. Right? And there, uh, his central finding was that past actions do not matter for assessments of credibility. They don't matter very much. What does matter is what he called the current calculus of military capabilities and interests that actors have available on hand in a given dispute setting. And his logic was uh, in many ways more straightforward and simpler than that immersive. It's simply that international politics is too serious a business for actors to simply assume that the other side will behave as they have in the past. Um, the idea was that we rely on reputations, past actions to judge others in ordinary life to infer others' credibility because the stakes of being wrong aren't very high. You know, a friend continuously breaks their word to, say, um, meet you for a movie date and you make judgments about them. You could be wrong. It might have been something situational. But then again, you know, you have other friends, okay? Um, the stakes aren't as high. But in, in international politics, the risk of war, the dangers of losing your sovereignty, of uh, having your core national interests infringed apart, um, inf uh, it tends to focus the mind, make people dispense with simple heuristics. I mean, it makes them get their shit together, so to speak. So he looked at um, a variety of historical cases, um, the so-called appeasement crises, for example, um, in the lead up to World War II. What he found was that even in these kind of canonical cases, um, the crisis between Hitler and the Allies um, surrounding Munich, for example. Even in this case, uh, uh, in these canonical cases, um, uh, actors do not really seem to have relied on their opponent's past behavior to judge their credibility in any particular setting. Right? It was the kinds of capabilities and interests at stake for both sides that really mattered. So uh, basically, these works and numerous follow-up studies, they upended the conventional wisdom on reputation and credibility among IR scholars. And as you alluded, uh, I would say still, even today, most security scholars, at least in the traditional vein, if you had to take an informal poll, I would say they would come down on the side that says countries like the United States should not make their decisions about whether to keep or abandon their current extended deterrence commitments just because they feel like it will negatively affect their credibility later on. Um, I would say a ballpark seven or eight out of 10 security scholars will tell you that's what they think. Um, that's my educated guess. Uh, but um, it would be an exaggeration, though, to say that there's a consensus on the matter. Um, several important studies in recent years, relatively recent years, say um, five, uh, reaching five, 10 years from back from where we are today, they relied on quantitative observational data as well as survey experimental methods to revitalize what I call the old conventional wisdom right, on reputation and credibility. Um, so that's where we stand. Uh, works by uh, people like Danielle Lupton in recent years. Uh, she argues that reputation still matters based on her survey experimental research. Um, but scholars have missed its, its effects, according to her, because they were looking for it in the wrong places. Um, reputations, according to her, form primarily around individual leaders rather than entire countries. 
um, and especially important are the words and deeds displayed by leaders early in their terms, right? When other countries' observers have uh, fewer information about what kind of person, what kind of leader um, this uh, new administration has, then um, basically the deeds and the words that you display early in your term kind of set the tone for how others assess your resolve um, through the rest of your uh, tenure. Um, so it's these kinds of works that um, in recent years have challenged um, the um, uh, what was once, I would say, a near consensus up until, say, the mid-2000s about um, uh, the relatively low value of stocking up a reputation for resolve based on your past actions um, for your credibility. Um, and um, um, that's where we stand. So there's been a wave of recent research drawing on these uh, sort of newer methods, social science methodologies, to kind of revitalize this debate, to kind of breathe new life into the old conventional wisdom. Well, that's interesting. I wonder if you can say something about the particular way that this is manifested in, you know, not the academy, you know, because in the foreign policy discourse in Washington, D.C., for example, the credibility argument can be expanded beyond what I think is the, the kind of thing tested and looked at closely in, in scholarly work where, for example, uh, during the Obama administration, he made some red line comment about chemical weapons use in Syria and then chemical weapons use seemed to happen. And so there was this lengthy debate about credibility. And this was a thing saying, okay, you must actively engage in a new war in order to preserve and protect and bolster your credibility. Not just that you can't abandon an ally or withdraw from a, from a war. So, so this, it, the way it seems to appear in our, um, in our foreign policy discourse often seems quite a, a distance from what this new revival of uh, reviving the old um, conventional wisdom on it, it actually said they, they, you can't draw the policy implications out from that new research can you um yeah that's that's an important point so i'm not saying that the scholars um who have um contributed this new wave of research i i think it's important work it's work that people should engage with um they're scholars of integrity um top-notch scholars in their own right um but that said in the american foreign policy debate it is true that this traditional thinking about reputation and credibility, this old conventional wisdom, um, regardless of the intentions of the people who approach them from an academic, social scientific point of view, is one of the arguments that has been used to bolster what can very legitimately be deemed a um, rather interventionist, militaristic, and almost expansionist foreign policy. Um, you mentioned that you know, some people make the case for even starting new wars or confrontations or conflicts in order to kind of signal to the rest of the world, your adversaries and allies abroad, that you are a resolved actor in international politics. You are not to be trifled with. Um, and in my view, this kind of um, line, line of reasoning, even among scholars, really came to the fore in the aftermath of the Afghanistan withdrawal. Right? Um, this body of research Again, over the past few years, the evidence has been conflictual, right? Um, you could make legitimate, plausible arguments and cite evidence uh, 
for for you know both approaches, right? And uh, the the result was that scholars found themselves in somewhat of a logjam when it came to their predictions about U.S. credibility post Afghanistan. Um, people like Joshua Cursor, can phenomenal scholar, uh, influential figure, um, teaching at Harvard, uh, he said that well, look, existing doubts that were harbored by U.S. adversaries and allies would grow stronger than they would have if had the U.S. continued fighting in Afghanistan. And that's what this kind of uh, survey experiment-based research, um, this uh, research that's supposed to probe at the micro-foundations of how ordinary people assess credibility, is, is what it points to. Right? Um, on the other hand, people like uh, Stephen Walt, um, Ron Krebs, Jennifer Spindell, um, they were more optimistic. Um, people like Stephen Maltz said that, you know, deciding not to continue a feudal war for less than vital interests, it doesn't tell you really any, anything much about whether you would fight if more serious interests were at stake. So I would say that if the Afghanistan withdrawal took place, say, um, uh, you know, earlier, uh, a decade earlier, so to speak, um, most kind of invested security scholars who had thought deeply about this issue would have applauded the the, the, uh, the uh, decision. Um, but partly because this new wave of research had breathed new life into the debate within kind of professional IR scholars, within among political scientists, um, scholars found themselves as somewhat of a logjam, um, divided on how we as IR scholars are supposed to interpret um, um, the ramifications of this, this decision and how we are supposed to speak to the broader kind of public foreign policy debate um, post-Afghanistan. <laughs> okay, so let's look um, at at your paper. Um, you, you just kind of restated the problem for us. Uh, one really good quote that you guys pluck from uh, the New York Times columnist Brett Stevens, again, just to kind of make the claim here very clear he writes, in the aftermath of the Saigon redux, which he's referring to the Afghan withdrawal, uh, every enemy will draw the lesson that the United States is a feckless power, and every ally, Taiwan, Ukraine, the Baltic states, Israel, Japan, will draw the lesson that it is on its own in the face of its enemies. So that's the central claim that you're trying to investigate. How did you decide to approach this question? What, what's, what's the methodology that you decided to look at this with? Now, again, before I uh, go into my direct answer, I should say um, you know, that, that, quotations, uh, that quotation by uh, Brett Stevens in the New York Times, that's a remarkable statement. It's, it's actually a social scientific hypothesis that he's advancing there. Um, and I have to say, you know, even scholars who have been at the forefront of breathing new life into what I call the old conventional wisdom, I, I don't think many of them would agree with that expansive of a judgment, right? People like Karen Yari Milo, Alex Weisiger, um, again, um, two phenomenal scholars who contributed kind of the early kind of uh, interjections into um, this uh, renewing this debate. Um, what they found in their paper was, um, you know, reputations, what you did in the past still matters in the uh, extent to which you get challenged in international politics, whether you are on the receiving end of crisis initiation of some kind of military challenge, but this result is primarily significant. It holds most effectively for um, what they said are disputes that belong to a similar category, right? 
disputes that are easy to analogize for for actors. Um, they they are the results are weaker, perhaps not non-existence according to them, but they're weaker for um, disputes that you know, just don't bear a lot of surface similarity. Um, and I would say people like Danielle Lupton wouldn't agree again with that kind of expansive you know statement. But it is again, it's also true that this was a kind of core rung of core argument that was thrown around, um, especially by many people who were generally critical of the Biden administration and its foreign policies in the aftermath of Afghanistan. It was um, similar statements were uttered by um, people like Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Mark Milley. And um, the, the fact of the matter is um, some IR scholars gave the impression in their kind of public-oriented, public-facing writings that they were sympathetic if not to the full brunt of Brett Stevens' claim, but to the idea that this will negatively affect American credibility um, at large. Right? Um, and our kind of starting premise in starting this research was that a kind of key component of this newer research on credibility and reputation happened based around survey experiments, Okay, um, which Again, they were important contributions that people should seriously engage with. Uh, one limitation that we saw in them, though, was that they tended, tended to be drawn overwhelmingly from American samples, samples of ordinary Americans. Um, and usually the argument was, you know, they're testing the micro foundations of how ordinary people assess credibility in international politics. Um, so you would take samples of ordinary Americans some, some random subset of them would be given kind of hypothetical scenarios where people made, uh, where uh, leaders or countries made um, uh, resolved or resolute actions or said resolute things in a hypothetical dispute scenario um, and um, others have not. And then you would ask them later on how you judge, um, how much resolve would you uh, credit this leader or country? Um, as having. Um, so this is kind of like the basic idea behind a lot of these survey experiments. And our sense was okay, important contributions, um, but they're mostly drawn from the American sample, samples of ordinary Americans. And there are reasons to believe that um, Americans, more than people in other countries, would be especially sensitive or vulnerable to this kind of reasoning um, for various reasons. Um, the United States remains... Uh, one of the few countries, or perhaps the only country, that maintains these kind of sprawling military commitments um, all around the globe. Um, and uh, there's some reason to believe that in order to justify and maintain public support for this kind of expansive network of military commitments abroad, uh, at least since the end of World War II, American policymakers and elites um, tended to deploy a lot of reputation-centric arguments um, in their kind of public-facing statements um, uh, to educate the American people, so to speak, about the necessity of, of these kind of peacetime costs of maintaining uh, large-scale military deployments abroad, um, the tendency to portray American adversaries as monoliths such that the behavior that you show to one of them um, will you know, send the wrong message or um, the wrong lesson to, to 
um, uh, another enemy elsewhere. It was perceived to be kind of intimately connected um, um, in kind of this uh, axis of evil uh, type of uh, type of situation, right? So American people are very arguably more used to and more prone to thinking about these core issues through the prism of the traditional reputation theory because they are kind of peppered with it, right, in their kind of foreign policy discourse and upbringing. American elites are very used to drawing on this kind of reasoning to justify an array of um, what I would deem um, highly interventionist or, or militaristic foreign policy behaviors. And the question was, would people in um, other countries, um, American allies and adversaries, would order people who um, have who have not grown accustomed to thinking of their country as having to maintain this sort of sprawling network of commitments abroad, what would they think? People who are on the receiving end of American security commitments, either you know you are on the receiving end of the threat that we will intervene against against you on behalf of another ally, or even if you're a person who is residing in one of these ally countries yourself, right? Uh, you want to assess the the idea is how how credible you deem the security commitment extended by your major power and the United States to be. Uh, Would they think in these terms? It, it just was not clear to us that this would be the case. So this was the initial kind of prompt behind um, us initiating this this project. Right, and so you did survey experiments uh, with Americans, with South Koreans, and with Chinese. Uh, tell us the results. Uh, so we ran these parallel survey experiments around the same time, um, about five months after the Afghanistan withdrawal, uh, but before uh, Russia's invasion of of Ukraine. Um, what we found was that uh, Americans, uh, as seen in earlier studies, um, say by Danielle Nupton and uh, Josh Kurtzer and Karen Yari Milo, Americans do tend to interpret um, the uh, consequences of the Afghanistan withdrawal in a negative light. So uh, the subset of Americans who we randomly reminded with selective information about the Afghanistan withdrawal, what we basically told them was just give them a vivid reminder that the United States withdrew its military forces um, from Afghanistan um, in uh, late 2021. And this led to the Taliban taking over the country, right? Um, so some portion, uh, some amount of uh, illustrating negative consequences that arose from um, from this event. And then we would ask them, um, in, in your view, do you think the, the people in China, an American adversary, people in South Korea, American ally, how how credible, how much faith do you think they will put? in the U.S. kind of a promise to fight on behalf of South Korea should ever a uh, military conflict arise between a country like South Korea and, and China. And what we found for the American sample was that, yes, the Americans do draw significant negative inferences from this event, um, as um, earlier survey experiments found. So what we wanted to do there was to establish kind of a baseline for how uh, to compare results from other countries with like if we found for example that if americans don't even think much about um the ramifications of this this incident when assessing how 
others will assess American credibility, then you know, we would have had maybe go back to the drawing board on these earlier findings as well, right? Maybe we did something wrong. Maybe our our uh, prompt or our kind of survey experimental methodology was so radically different from those of earlier studies that we found this um, different result. But you know, what the American findings tell us is that no, we are adopting broadly similar methodologies here as with these studies conducted a few years back. Um, and then we deployed a parallel uh, survey experiment in China and South Korea. So we would remind ordinary people in these two countries with uh, the same vignette, reminding them that the United States withdrew from Afghanistan, uh, resulting in these uh, negative kind of, uh, political and humanitarian consequences for the Afghanistan people. Um, and then we would ask them, uh, how do you feel about the likelihood that the United States will fight on behalf of South Korea if a military conflict should arise in East Asia? Um, and we've, what we found at the, at the baseline there was that there is no significant inference that either the Chinese or the South Koreans draw when they are selectively reminded of the Afghanistan withdrawal. Um, and our interpretation there is it's, it's just the fact that there's just more information. There's just, just too much that we are left, um, that we are leaving unspoken, right? They wouldn't, they don't invariably draw um, conclusions one way or another from American behavior in Central Asia um, uh, and, and extrapolate from that experience to how the U.S. will behave in, in this case, right? Um, and that in the third kind of uh, leg or rung of the experiment, what we did was we took another sample of the uh, South Korean and Chinese respondents. And for uh, this subset, we uh, introduced another kind of treatment arm, giving them the same selective reminder, but giving them one extra additional sentence that tells them, um, and because of this, this, this decision, the United States now has more military resources, will be able to channel more military resources um, into East Asia to contain the rise of China. Um, basically cueing, alerting our respondents with the possibility that the United States will now be able to devote more strategic attention and resources, capabilities um, in their own region. And what we find there is when we give this short additional prompt, um, individuals who are reminded of the Afghanistan withdrawal um, tend to arrive at even more positive assessments of uh, the uh, American um, commitment to defend South Korea in the event that a military conflict arises in this region. So uh, this is um, just a finding that, uh, in a word, kind of it flies in the face of how a lot of people tend to think about the invariable consequences of withdrawing from one region and the consequences that this is supposed to have in, um, in, in a more, arguably more important region halfway across the globe. Right. Right, so you, you not only find no evidence that U.S. credibility is undermined by by the withdrawal, but you find actually that enemies reason to fear us more, and allies find reasons to uh, believe even more in the credibility of U.S. commitments. Um, given given proper diplomatic messaging, I would add. Right. I mean, we are of course talking about ordinary people. Uh, ordinary people just don't seem to know much about 
foreign policy, international relations, these types of things. That's correct. That should be kept in mind. But speaking of that, here's one thing you guys write. Exploring the extent to which the U.S. public can be deprogrammed from simplistic reputation-based thinking would yield valuable insights for theory and policy. Uh, please say more about the deprogramming. Yeah, so uh, what we were writing there was uh, there's just more to be learned about why people in these different countries draw such different inferences from um, the same prompt, the same reminder about the same geopolitical event. Um, and we kind of throw around certain kind of logics and um, arguments for why Americans tend to be more susceptible um, to this type of thinking than their uh, counterparts in other countries, right? Um, and that's basically what I laid out for you earlier. Um, you know, for decades and decades, American elites have been accustomed to deploying these arguments when kind of they are educating, uh, kind of shaping up the American public for some kind of uh, intervention or or commitment abroad. Um, but so for the deprogramming, sorry to interrupt, elites would have to find value in the insights from the, the scholarly treatments here, right? Right. Our, our intuition there was that um, the effects that we found for the American public itself, first of all, the substantive effects weren't very large. Right? Um, yeah, a couple percentage points. And when we disaggregate the sample into different types of people, um, we again find that the effects are mostly significant for people who tend to feel that American kind of involvement, military engagement abroad is a good thing, something to be maintained, something to be kept. Um, but people who don't see it as an unalloyed good, people who have um, what, for lack of a better term, what we term kind of isolationist tendencies, people who don't see and the U.S. military engagement and involvement meddling in other places as an unmitigated gun, um, these folks don't tend to draw these similar negative inferences or conclusions from, from the uh, reminder about the Afghanistan withdrawal. So um, what we were suggesting there was that um, you know, future research can take cue from our findings to explore um, how these prior beliefs can, might be molded by, um, uh, say, um, educators, scholars, policymakers, um, if they are committed to kind of making the American public think in more nuanced terms about um, what it means for the U.S. to shed some of this military uh, burdens and commitments abroad. Um, you know, isolationism is a, is a bad kind of a way to describe many of those kind of uh, those propositions, right? Um, um, but again, like, uh, how do you get the American people on board uh, with proposals to that smack of rolling back America's kind of military engagement with allies and adversaries abroad. Like, how do you uh, make it so that they might not see this as a necessarily um, something that can deliver a fatal blow to um, America's kind of core uh, core national interests or values? Um, and we're saying that uh, some of our findings kind of point toward a research agenda um, that could explore this um, this question. Uh, one key takeaway that you guys identify for policymakers is that they should be more willing to extricate their country from costly military commitments in strategically peripheral areas without fearing some widespread erosion of credibility um, because foreign audiences don't see it that way. 
And so uh, you write that determined leaders can steer U.S. grand strategy in a direction that is much more restrained, flexible, and effective than it is today. Say more about that, about the strategic implications of this research for U.S. foreign policy, and also maybe about what changes you hope to see in U.S. grand strategy in the future. Yeah, um, again, to qualify that remark a, a little bit, we do kind of leave open um, the possibility that you know, if there are more an analogous disputes, analogous confrontations where um, allies or or people in partner countries, or people in countries who's who are facing kind of um, a uh, uh, a American partner who finds themselves in a position that could be more easily analogized to that of Afghanistan. Um, then you might, if you ran a similar study to ours in those regions, you might uh, arrive at a uh, at different findings. Well, we are open to that possibility, and this is what people like um, you know Karen Yari Milo or Alex Weisiger. Um, or Joshua Cursor uh, might say when apprising this kind of research, right? Well, the situations are so different. You know, on the one hand, we are de- dealing with formalized commitments in East Asia. Uh, Afghanistan wasn't a formal ally of the United States by the time that uh, the withdrawal took place. Um, in a completely different region of the world, um, so on and so forth. So, uh, so just so there's jump that in process. quickly yeah. to yeah. to emphasize that point. Um, and we've mentioned this earlier in the show as well. The there's there's reputation and credibility debunkers in the scholarly literature, and there's these people that have revived some sense that it's actually valuable, and we need to look at it. But basically, none of the scholarly research iterates the issue in the way that the DC foreign policy discourse does. The more political of the of the conversation is. Um, has a cartoon version of credibility and reputation. Yeah, I would say I'm aware of um, virtually no serious IR scholar who would put their name next to a statement um, along the lines of what Brett Stevens wrote in the in the New York Times. Right? Um, but what we are seeing here is that kind of um, uh, going back to your uh, initial question, the this kind of knee jerk reaction that um, U.S. policymakers and a lot of commentators, pundits. And um, ordinary members of the public have, when the U.S. Um, is either shedding some of its global commitments or debating, um, offloading some of its uh, prior military engagements, um, and this knee-jerk reaction to it, where they say, "Oh, in- inevitably, you know, this is going to have wider ramifications for American credibility um, in other regions that are perhaps more important places where we don't want to back down." Um, this, you know, is a is what we we think is a losing proposition at best, and uh, U.S. decision makers shouldn't put much stock into that kind of fear or concern when deliberating whether um, uh, the United States should be extricating forces from uh, a peripheral region that is a decline in, in strategic value, and in fact is um, placing enormous burdens on America's ability to. Uh, really kind of husband its resources and concentrate on the disputes that matter most in the 21st century. Um, so that's what we're writing there. And in general, uh, if policymakers recognize um, some of our findings, but but you know, uh, a litany of other important studies done by scholars, professional uh, scholars invested in this topic over the decades, um, then they could, they, 
they can steer U.S. grand grand strategy, as we say, in a more restrained and flexible and effective direction um, than it has been uh, for most of the uh, post-Cold War era. Joshua Bjorn, thank you very much for joining us. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much, John. Um, and you've had a, just a fantastic lineup of uh, scholars on, on this program over the years. I'm, I'm glad to be um, among one of those contributors. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Mm-hmm.